I got a question. Sure. How sure. long is this going to take? It shouldn't take a whole lot longer. Do you think I can get there before 129? Um, probably not. Oh. What's that 129? Well, I had a project to do in six This is the story of the wrongful conviction of Brendan Dassey. Over the next seven episodes, we re-examine and explore the influences at the heart of this profound miscarriage of justice. Welcome to The Sixth Hour. four years. I've spent hours, days at a time, buried under the weight of the wrongful conviction of a Mishkot High special ed student who had gone to school on February the 27th, 2006, as an innocent 16-year-old kid, only to be catapulted into adulthood at the hands of local law enforcement when he left as a suspect in one of Wisconsin's most notorious criminal investigations. This miscarriage of justice is Brendan's story. You're 16 years of age. You don't truly comprehend the situation you find yourself in. But the touch of steel and the clinical corridors devoid of warmth and the pain and loneliness of being separated from your family is all too real. You didn't understand when you placed yourself at a crime scene or fell victim to adult interrogation tactics that led you to incriminate yourself. Why Special Agent Fassbender had told you on February 27th that you were free to leave and not under arrest. And as a juvenile with significant intellectual and social impairments, you believed him. You felt you were helping when the investigators pumped you full of information and you parroted it back. You didn't understand that the fact-feeding and psychological manipulation was calculated and considered because 
you just didn't know. And how were you to know that those tasked with defending you would pimp you to the prosecution? The defence of Brendan Dassey is littered with contemptible characters, absurd and opaque in their ineptitude, tricksters, if you will. Brendan knew nothing of his Sixth Amendment right to effective counsel, or that it should entail zealous advocacy. No, Brendan knew his attorney, Len Kaczynski, thought him guilty. He believes you did it, Brendan, said Brendan's mother, Barb. There was no adherence to an attorney's duty of candour and good faith required to protect the integrity of the judicial process. No, Brendan, Brendan had Michael O'Kelly and his blue ribbons and abusive interrogation tactics. And Kaczynski colluding with the prosecution to turn Brendan a state's witness. Let us not forget Kratz telling the jury, we are going to show you the whole interrogation tape only for Fremgen to have agreed not to show Brendan's recantation. Did you know that Brendan requested a polygraph test and actually passed it with flying colours? But O'Kelly, his own investigator, told him he failed. In this episode, I'm joined by Wisconsin Defence Attorney and author Michael Ciccini to discuss the machinations of those tasked with defending Brendan, Kaczynski, Fremgen and Edelstein and the dismal strategies that cemented the wrongful conviction of Brendan Dassey. unpack the ineffective assistance of counsel claims central to Brendan's appellate journey and ultimately his habeas petition in federal court. Kenosha lawyer and author of Anatomy of a False Confession, the interrogation and conviction of Brendan Dassey, convicting Avery and much more, Michael Ciccini joins me. Thank you, Michael. Yes, thanks for having me. The Supreme Court has held that part of the right to counsel is the right to effective assistance of counsel. There are currently over 2,600 exonerations documented by the Exoneration Registry. We know from statistics that 453 of the overturned convictions involved grossly incompetent defence. One could posit that because those listed are due to successful claims, it might not be a true reflection of egregious attorney conduct. What are your thoughts? Well, the types of misconduct are pretty, can be pretty severe. I mean, I'm sure you're familiar with the cases where lawyers have fallen asleep during trial. Stems from overworked public defenders. The caseloads they have to take are so enormous. I think that's probably the underlying problem. And then in other cases, you do have lawyers falling asleep or coming in drunk. I think those are rare, but they're kind of the ones that make the headlines, so to speak. I, I think the, another big problem with this is a lot of times the defense lawyer will get blamed for what the prosecutor and judge did. If you read a lot of these cases, uh, the ineffective claims are actually targeting the defense lawyer for not correcting the trial judge or not playing a proper referee of the defense uh, of the prosecutor. So there's just a huge range of conduct and behavior. And I think overall, the number itself really doesn't mean much. You kind of have to break it down. And I think if you did, 
the two biggest problems would be that uh, prosecutors and judges are not held accountable for their own errors. And then the other problem, I think, could be a really overworked public defenders. A lot of times their workload is so enormous through no fault of their own that um, those are kind of two forms of ineffective assistance that really, in my opinion, aren't the fault of the defense lawyer. And then, of course, the, the other category I would say would be the defense lawyer making genuine errors, you know, that affect the case. Yeah, which leads us directly into Len Kaczynski. Brendan's injustice is bursting with a cast of, of characters, but it is Kaczynski and his behavior that ranks among the most deplorable. So Kaczynski was appointed by the State Public Defender's Office in representing 16-year-old Brendan. He was appointed on Tuesday, March the 7th. Kaczynski would not meet his client until Friday, March the 10th. However, he courted the media attention on numerous occasions in between. You were appointed, was it on March 7th or March 8th? March 7th. March 7th, okay. Did you talk to Brendan on that day on March 7th? I don't believe I did. Okay. However, you did uh, talk to the press, is that right? Yeah, shortly after the appointment, the call started rolling into the office. Sure. I want to draw your attention to a news report from Channel 26. It says, we have a 16-year-old who, while morally and legally responsible, was heavily influenced by someone that can only be described as something close to evil incarnate. Right? That's what it says I said, but that wasn't me. Okay. Um, is there anything about this statement that bothers you? To say that we have a 16-year-old who's morally and legally responsible, uh, that would, in effect, admit guilt, and that is something you should definitely not say. Just for the record, Your Honor, Mr. Kaczynski testified that he did not make those comments, and this exhibit is being introduced as impeachment evidence to demonstrate that, in fact, Mr. Kaczynski made those comments. The court will receive it. Attorney Len Kaczynski immediately lashed out at Stephen Avery. We have a 16-year-old who while uh, morally and legally responsible, was heavily influenced by someone that can only be described as something close to evil incarnate. We can't forget Kaczynski telling NBC we have a 16-year-old who, while morally and legally responsible, was heavily influenced by someone that can only be described as something close to evil incarnate. Or his appearance on The Nancy Grace Show, where he states, well, if the tape is accurate, an accurate recollection of what occurred, there is frankly no defence. And this is all without even reading the criminal complaint. Is it true that the American bar standards caution lawyers to not make statements to the media that are substantially likely to prejudice the case? Yeah, there's uh, ethics rules directly on point about that. The American bar rules really don't mean much unless the state adopts them. So the Wisconsin ethics rules would be the kind of the body of law, if you will, governing that. Well, there's there's a lot of different bodies of law, but this, what you're talking about, definitely falls into that third category. It's not a problem with uh, being overworked by a, you know, a public defender. It's not a problem with the judge or prosecutor committing misconduct and then the, the defense lawyer failing to correct it. This definitely, I think, falls into the area of ineffective that most people think about um, when, they, when they hear this stuff. And the as far as talking to the media, there's definitely risks there and there's definitely ethics rules that govern that and then there's just general attorney competence rules as well that might come into play here 
Uh, one of them would be, you know, the first thing I would want to do before talking to the media is talk to the client. That would be my personal approach. Talk to the client, find out what all kinds of things about the case. And it does seem in this case, he kind of did the reverse. It seems there was a lot of media contact first. I think in one of the cases, it, it indicated that by the time he talked to the client for an hour, he had talked to the media for 10 hours, I think, or something to that effect. So that definitely raises a flag for ineffective assistance of counsel. That is different, though, than ethics rules. Just keep that, you know, keep that in mind. Those are two different things. Although sometimes if there's an ethics rule violation, that can certainly come into play when analyzing ineffective assistance of counsel. Yeah. And before we look into the layers of Kaczynski's ineffectiveness, can you please explain what the Strickland standard entails and how it differs from Kyler versus Sullivan and what factors would determine which standard one would seek an ineffective assistance claim under? Yeah, the, the, in a, the Strickland claim, the ineffective assistance is one, the attorney made some type of an error. And then number two, that the client was prejudiced. That's it in a nutshell. I mean, the, the language varies a little bit by state, but the Strickland case basically boils it down to that. And the other case you mentioned, Sullivan, I think you're referring to the conflict of interest. And that is what the, for, well, I guess the case law does lay out why they did it, but Dassey's appellate lawyers pursued Kaczynski under the conflict of interest standard because I believe it has a little bit lighter second prong. In other words, you don't have to show prejudice. You just have to show some type of adverse effect or something. Now, these are, lang these are words that don't, you know, they don't really have firm meanings. His appellate lawyers chose to go after Kaczynski under that conflict of interest test. Now, the problem is, while the second prong is easier, the problem is I think the courts ultimately said, well, there's no conflict of interest. Kaczynski wasn't employed by the state. He wasn't married to a prosecutor. There wasn't any real conflict there. So the whole thing kind of fell apart because of that. And I don't think that the courts really ever analyzed it under the ineffective assistance. They kind of went under this related test of uh, conflict of interest. And some would suggest that Strickland is well below an acceptable minimum level of attorney performance. And that bears the question whether satisfying a constitutional standard equals competence in this area. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. Those are two different things. Like we, we talked about before, there's an ethics rule on competence, and then there's the Strickland standard, and they're not necessarily the same. And a lot of times they overlap, certainly, but um, I, I don't, I would have liked to have seen this analyzed under the Strickland test. Now, I'm not criticizing the appellate lawyers at all. I don't do appellate law, so there could have been many reasons why they chose to do what they did uh, and use that uh, conflict of interest test. I think when you break it, when you place it under Strickland, you and I could certainly come up, you know, tonight, sit down and write a brief uh, arguing that Kaczynski uh, his his performance fell below the standard of Strickland. I think we could certainly make that claim, and that's uh, Strickland, the uh, you know the standard basic ineffective assistance of counsel test. And as you mentioned before, Strickland has betrayed clients of an attorney who slept through portions of a trial, even a lawyer arrested for drunk driving on the way to jury selection. It's quite a low bar. Do you think that Strickland is one of the worst Supreme Court decisions for the defense bar? No, I, you know, it's never the original decision. It's like all of our rights have basically been decimated. Uh, Miranda, that case, okay, it's a great case, but then they just ruin it after the fact. You know, the subsequent decisions just chip away at it, and they reduce these rights 
to almost nothing. And I think this is no different than that. So I don't think it was a, you know, one of the worst decisions. Like, I'll give you another example of what they've, what they've done. This is something I've complained about before. If you read that original Strickland case, it deals with the defense attorney's actual decisions on how to proceed in a case. But since that time, they've gone a different way and they've used it for other things, like I mentioned before, bl blaming a defense lawyer for something the prosecutor did. So I, I don't think it was a bad decision. I think it's just these court decisions after these major decisions will just bend and twist and contort the law. And they do that in ways that ultimately their goal, I believe, is to uphold convictions yeah. and then basically level the original constitutional protection. Kaczynski represented Brendan during a five-month time frame. So this is from the March to the August of 2006. In those five months, Kaczynski waived critical issues such as Brenda's Miranda arguments during the motion to suppress, spoke to the media more than his own client, hired Mike O'Kelly, an investigator, to interrogate his own client and obtain further confessions to aid the prosecution. Okay. Let's go to exhibit number 64. And is that an email that you sent to Len Kaczynski? Yes, it is. April 27th? That's correct. All right. Go to the paragraph where it says, I am not concerned. I am not concerned with finding connecting evidence placing Brendan inside the crime scene, as Brendan will be state's primary witness. This will only serve to bolster the prosecution. Brendan's truthful testimony may be the breakthrough that will put their case more firmly on all fours. So your goal is not only to get Brendan to confess, but to also go out and gather evidence to help the state in its prosecution, correct? That is correct. Even if that evidence tends to inculpate Brendan. I, yes, yes, that's correct. Okay. Now, you're working for Mr. Kaczynski at this time, right? Yes, I am. And you're also working for Brendan Dassey at this time, correct? Brendan is my client, yes. Okay. And what you're talking about here is securing evidence that would be useful to the prosecution and prosecuting Stephen Avery, and, and you make reference to Brendan's testimony. That's correct sent an email to the police and prosecutors indicating where he thought the murder weapon was hidden without informing Brendan or obtaining his consent, and of course the search produced nothing, allowed Wiegert and Fassbender to interrogate Brendan alone and without an attorney on May 13th, and failed to vigorously cross-examine Wiegert at the suppression hearing. Now for the May 13th stunt, he was removed from the case by Judge Fox, citing Strickland. Right. However, it wasn't until August um, that he was finally removed and decertified on the recommendation that his failure to provide competent representation to Brendan was indefensible. Yet Judge Fox, in his post-conviction court, wrote that Kaczynski adequately represented Dassey's interests and cannot be said to have provided ineffective assistance of counsel. That is breathtaking, and particularly as Fox initially removed him from the case. Yeah, the this is a type of thing we see, we defense lawyers see routinely. The, you broke up a little bit there, but I believe you pointed out how originally the trial court judge removed Kaczynski claiming that he rendered ineffective assistance. And then I the only thing I can think of in the judge's defense when he later denied the motion, uh, the post-conviction motion for ineffective assistance counsel is that it was raised on a conflict of interest grounds rather than 
ineffective assistance? I don't know, but it is, I think you described it as breathtaking and that's true, but it's really kind of routine. These things happen a lot at the trial court level. Like I said, the goal is often to affirm convictions. And you have to remember this was all happening before making a murderer came out. So Brendan's just, a, you know, in their eyes, he's someone who's guilty and they're looking to affirm that conviction yeah. how, however they can. And I think some of the opinions, when that happens, the, the opinions aren't, they're, they read very disingenuously, in other words, you know, and you, you can see these, they're almost contradicting themselves at point. So I think that was the real cause of, of that situation. Firstly, to get your thoughts on whether the March 1st statement should have been suppressed for its violation of Miranda guidelines and Kaczynski conceding in that suppression hearing that Brendan was not in custody for the Feb 27th and March 1st interrogations. And secondly, your thoughts on the various errors in judgment made by Kaczynski, intentional or, or otherwise. You know, as you pointed out, they raised several things that he did uh, or didn't do and conceding that the interview was non-custodial or conceding any a Miranda issue. I, I don't think Kaczynski could have done anything there to have won that. No trial court was going to um, rule for Dassey on those from my um, experience and also from reading Wisconsin case law for the last 20 years. I just don't think that was going to happen. But uh, you, you then talked about kind of errors of, what was the other question was about errors of judgment that he made throughout the case? Yeah. Yeah. The, you know, the, the Strickland standard doesn't allow the judges to look in hindsight at what was done and then say, well, it should have been done this way. As long as the attorney can articulate a good reason for doing or not doing what he did, then that's going to be upheld after the fact. Now, in Kaczynski's case, they, I think, could have made a good case that this wasn't an error in judgment. He didn't, he just violated basic standards of practice. And then that would be sufficient to satisfy the Strickland test from Dassey's standpoint. The one that sticks out to me, because remember, you've got this two-part test. One is, did he do something deficiently? And then two, was there prejudice? And I think the thing that just jumps out at me is when he allowed the interview to take place, uh, the final interview between Dassey and Fassbender and Weigert uh, in custody in the jail, and then they pulled that stunt where they told him, well, you better call your mom, you know, and talk about this before I do. And then Kaczynski was not present for that interview. And then he did call his mother, Brendan did. And then he did as, as the interrogators told him to do. And then that was used at the trial. So to me, that was a harmful, that was an incident of where they could have made the claim that he failed to perform effectively. Uh, and then secondly, there was prejudice from it. And it seems to me that prejudice flows directly from Kaczynski's decision to allow that interview to happen or to not be present for the interview. So to me, that jumps out as the biggest thing that could have been used in an ineffective assistance of counsel claim. And then when I kind of look at everything, I mean, my approach would be, and again, I'm not, you know, I hate to pass judgment on someone else because the job of a defense lawyer, in my opinion, is very hard and it requires a ton of judgment, snap decisions often. Uh, but I certainly would have not have talked to the media before talking to the client. In fact, I generally don't like to talk to the media in any case. There are certainly times when, you know, when I have, I think you should talk to the client. You should square up the defense first. You should find out what the client has to say. And that's what I would do. And I think there are certainly a lot of 
ethics rules and practice standards that would certainly suggest or even require that. Yeah. I mean, the court wrote, uh, the post-conviction court wrote, that other than a brief audio clip of a portion of a phone conversation between Dassey and his mother, which the state played without objection to its cross-examination of the defendant, and several questions asked on the cross-examination of Dr. Robert Gordon, nothing from the May 13th was introduced at trial. The state made little more than passing reference to the May 13th phone call in its closing to the jury. This is at best an understatement. Would you agree? Yeah, that's just wrong. I mean, that's the type of thing appellate courts do. When they want to affirm a conviction, they'll minimize things or downplay it and then say, you know, there wasn't any prejudice. Now, if Kaczynski had already been found to be ineffective, I wonder why that, you know, that one thing maybe the appellate, the trial lawyers could have done was move to exclude that. But it was powerful stuff because, remember, the argument that they made was the other interrogation was tainted. Uh, all of his other statements were tainted by coercive police tactics. And then the statement to his mother, the state's free to argue, look, he said this to his mother. There were no police there interrogating him. There were no police making him promises or threatening him. So, yeah, I think that's a gross understatement of the impact that that had. And that's another way where Strickland kind of fails is the appellate court gets to look at things after the fact. And they can easily dismiss something as not having a prejudicial effect because they can, they can do, for example, say, well, it was only six lines in a 200-page transcript or something. Well, that's six lines. That's not really a fair measure. That six lines could have a huge impact. And then couple that with the prosecutor's closing argument. So, yeah, I do disagree with that. I think it had a big impact on the case, given that the central argument was this confession is false because it was coerced. That argument doesn't apply to the statement to the mom. So I think that's why it was a big deal. So they come up with a plan, and the plan is to persuade Brendan to call his mother later that evening and to talk to her about his role in the offense. When are you going to tell your mom about this? Probably the next time I see her. Because you lied to her so far, right? Don't you think you should call her and tell her? At the time that you suggested to Brendan that he call his mother, you knew that calls from the jail were recorded, didn't you? Yes. And you wanted Brendan to call his mother and to repeat what he had told you. Is that right? Yes, for several different reasons. They used the, the phone call from Brendan to his mother three times during the trial. And they used the call to show Brendan, you know, supposedly admitted guilt in the absence of coercion. And they used it again during closing argument to construct a timeline of the crime, bringing Brendan's alibi testimony into question. I think that the call was devastating to Brendan's outcome. Yeah, definitely. And just counting the number of times it was brought up two or three times or the number of lines in a transcript, that doesn't measure the impact. I think, I think you're right on that. Yeah, yeah. Brendan filed a post-conviction motion in state trial court in August 2009, requesting a new suppression hearing and a new trial on the basis of ineffective assistance of counsel which was centred on Kaczynski's conduct, including his apathetic performance at the suppression hearing. 
Dassey argued that Kaczynski's collective actions constituted disloyalty to him. December the 13th, the court held it was in fact constitutionally competent representation and the Wisconsin Court of Appeals would take as little as six paragraphs to reject Dassey's appellate claim in the January of 2013. Is what we saw here an across-the-board determination and how is the objectiveness of an attorney's performance determined? Well, in this case, I think it was determined based on that loyalty standard uh, or the conflict of interest. And I think that kind of that allowed them to kind of dispense with all of this because there wasn't a conflict that the court held. I, I did not I would not have thought of that using that type of, of a claim because a conflict usually comes into play if you're if you if you are married to the other party's attorney or if you are being employed by them or, or something like that. But as far as then determine, determining, I think your other question was how is whether something is objectively unreasonable trial strategy or what were you thinking of with regard to that? Is that, is that what you're getting at? Yeah, so how is the objectiveness determined? Yeah, they, they could cite to a, a rule of practice like the, in a, there's so many of these things. You mentioned the ABA standards, there's ethics rules, there's public defenders, they list, they give a whole, list of standards of things the attorney is supposed to do, for example, obtain discovery, review discovery, meet with the client to determine the client side of things. So there's sometimes those type of objective standards, you can say, well, if an attorney never met with the client, then that's just, that's just by definition, that's not reasonable. Objectively, it's unreasonable. Most of the times it doesn't fall into those categories and it's going to be, well, you have to look at the decision the client made and why, and it's a real judgment call. So it becomes much muddier. It's not a clear cut um, issue. The Kaczynski thing, this situation, they had more clear cut standards, I think, that you could apply than usual because of things like we've already talked about, like talking to the media for 10 hours before talking to the client for an hour or whatever the ratio was. So I think there, there's certainly some objective standards to look at where normally it's not that clear cut. Mm. And Kaczynski didn't secure any subject experts to assist Brendan's case or, or an expert even to assist in evaluating the several law enforcement interrogations that Brendan was subjected to. The post-conviction counsel, of course, would call upon Dr. Richard Leo, who I talked with in a previous episode to testify that the interrogators' statements to Dassey on March the 1st amount to impermissible promises of leniency. How common is it not to call subject matter experts in a trial that pivots on a confession? It's, I have gone both ways. There are times where I haven't and times where I have. There's no real answer to it. A lot of times now with Wisconsin changing to a Daubert standard for the admissibility of expert testimony, we now have situations where every person the prosecutor called as an expert, those have been reaffirmed on confession. On, on appeal under the Daubert standard, nothing's changed from their perspective. But from our perspective, a lot of times we get shut down in trying to call experts. So that's kind of an added problem that really didn't apply back in Dassey's trial. But it, it all depends on the facts. And I have had cases where I knew right away I wouldn't call an expert. I've had others where I've consulted with them and they said, no, this looks pretty clear cut and obvious to the jury. I, I think it all hinges on what is within the jurors' common knowledge and what would be outside of the jurors' common knowledge. Generally speaking, a false confession, why people do that would fall outside of a juror's common knowledge. 
Now, there's some exceptions to that. If the police make a blatant threat, like we're going to go arrest your mother for such and such, uh, if you don't confess to this and the person, I mean, that might be so obvious you don't need an expert, but with more subtle interrogation tactics, then you would get into the area where you may need an expert. So it really depends on the facts. It depends on the type of threats being made by the police against the person being interrogated, the suspect. So it's just so many factors. And over time, it almost becomes a gut feel, but certainly you wouldn't call an expert in all cases. Uh, and some people are more inclined to call, some lawyers are more inclined to call experts than others, I think. So it's really just a judgment call. Yeah. I think overall, it's a concern that the state countered Brendan's position by saying that Kaczynski was trying to get the best deal for his client. And even that the May 13th statement was proffered as an avenue to a plea agreement, I think is quite yeah, tragic. The, really. Well, I, that's the state's, that's what uh, Kaczynski said. I think it seems to me that it might have been the case that Kaczynski was not aware of the false confession defense, for example, that different interrogation tactics produce false confessions. Like he said at one point that, well, there's nothing in here. They, they didn't put words in his mouth. Uh, he made a statement to the media, I believe. And you, you're probably, this is all fresher in your mind than in mine. But I think at one point he said to the media, yeah, you know, if uh, they didn't really put words in his mouth. And he countered, Stephen Avery even made some statement that Dassey is young and not too bright and would have been intimidated. And I think Kaczynski even countered that. It might have been that he just wasn't familiar with that type of defense. And then you could argue, well, that's something a competent attorney should be familiar with if you're doing criminal defense. So I think that might have been the problem. As I read these different case decisions, it seems to me that he may just have been unaware of that as a possible defense. Now, a lot of lay people are unaware of it, but as a lawyer, it's something we have to at least consider. And if you don't even consider that and that's where you might get into trouble with the ineffective assistance of counsel claim. You at least have to consider these things. You might choose to call, jumping ahead to Brendan's trial, you might choose to call a suggestibility expert, but not, the, not another expert like Larry White, who does uh, the interrogation tactics. He can testify to that. Or you might do it vice versa. You might choose to call Larry White, but not an expert to talk about suggestibility if the defendant didn't really exhibit those characteristics. And then you might choose to call no experts, but you have to consider it and, and you have to um, at least weigh the possibility, look at the facts and then come to a reasoned conclusion on how to proceed. We jump now to August of 2016. The habeas petition has been successful. Judge Duffin wrote, Kaczynski's conduct was inexcusable, both tactically and ethically. It is one thing for an attorney to point out to a client how deep of a hole the client is in but to assist the prosecution in digging that hole deeper is an affront to the principles of justice that underlie a defence attorney's vital role in the adversarial system. And then we have the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals panel majority who wrote, we note, however, that should the government decide to retry Dassey, the issue of the admissibility of the May 13th telephone call between Dassey and his mother will require a fresh look to determine whether it is the fruit, so to speak, of an involuntarily obtained confessional tree. Can you explain the implications of that statement? Yeah, that's had the decision ultimately not been reversed again by the, you know, the full panel of the Seventh Circuit or however many judges participated, then that would come back and then the trial judge would have to decide, okay, 
the Seventh Circuit said, you know, this is not admissible. However, Dassey did make this other statement to his mother, and they have to decide how attenuated that statement was from the misconduct. Let me give you, let's change the facts a little bit. If Fassbender had stood there right over Dassey while he's calling his mother, and he said, you call her right now and you tell her A, B, and C. And if Dassey does it, I think that would be much clearer that that's a fruit of the, that's um, a direct consequence of the police misconduct of the suppressed evidence. It's, it flows directly from the suppressed evidence. Now, the state would have argued had this gone back, they would have said, well, this was, this was sufficiently attenuated as the language they use. It's far removed from the misconduct, even though the interrogation, the unlawful interrogation ultimately produced this. It's so far attenuated, there was, there was a lot of uh, time that passed in between. They'll look to time, place, and circumstances. They would argue, well, the detectives left, time passed, Dassey went and he made a phone call. That statement is not a fruit of that earlier problem or misconduct or suppressed evidence, and therefore we're going to allow that in. So it could very well have been the case that um, that came in to evidence had it been sent back for retrial. And then we still have a confession. And then Dassey would have to explain why he said that. And then that goes back and it brings all the other stuff in. So yeah. it'd be interesting to see how that would have turned out. But remember, the decision would have been made by the trial court on remand. So given what they did before that point, how do you think they would decide that? I mean, it's a big risk. A hundred percent. I mean, there's no doubt that, you know, we watched the, the May 13th interrogation of Brendan and we get in Fassbender. It's quite insidious watching how they bring Brendan to to the phone call. Yeah, it's just tragic all round, really. Now we'll move to touch on Mark Fremgen and Ray Edelstein and their performance. Brendan in post-conviction contends that Fremgen and Edelstein ineffectively assisted him during and prior to trial, again citing a lack of expert witnesses to educate the jury on why Brendan's confession was produced by coercive police tactics. Dr. Gordon was a suggestibility expert and not qualified to talk to the coercive interrogation techniques. Would you agree that is grounds for an IAC claim? Yeah, certainly for the claim. And I think they provided, my recollection of that case is that they said, well, had we called, say, Larry White, I think he, Larry White was mentioned uh, as a public right. infection ex expert that could have testified. And they said, well, if we had called a Larry White or some expert, then the state would have called one in rebuttal, and now we're just dealing with the battle of the experts. I think that was their explanation for it. To me, it always seems, when I look at these two components, the suggestibility and then the false confession, it always seems to me that the jury could benefit more from a false confession expert like Larry White as opposed to suggestibility. I think the jury can get a feel for, well, this is a young kid, He's not, you know, his IQ, well, you couldn't, without the suggestibility expert, you may not be able to get that in. But it seems to me that that's more intuitive to a jury. So it's a little surprising to see it done that way. It seems to me what good is the suggestibility without talking also about the coercive interrogation tactics. But, um, you know, they stated a reason for doing that. It was, uh, the, you know, the court found it to be a good reason. And again, in hindsight, it doesn't have to be perfect. Uh, it doesn't have to even be the best decision. It's just, well, was that reasonable under that, uh, at that point in time? Did the lawyers consider calling Larry White? Did they, or a similar expert, did they decide against it? And what were their reasons? And virtually anything 
at that point is unchallengeable. As long as the attorneys considered it, they weighed it, they came to a decision, and pretty much everyone stuck with that, whether in hindsight it's a good decision or a bad decision. So that, uh, that's how that played out. Yeah, you're on the money. The, the strategy of trial counsel totally centered on humanizing Brendan. And I believe Edelstein didn't want to muddy the waters with experts and get into a battle of experts without focusing on the facts. But in trying to humanize Brendan as a young, easily manipulated individual, I think that speaks to guilt. So if we're going into trial with a strategy that says he's young and he's easily manipulated. Yeah, I, I, would have, I would not have decided the way he did. And you can tell I'm, as a defense lawyer, I'm cautious. I don't like blaming other defense lawyers for things. So I'm, I guess you could call that a form of bias. So I can tell you, I would have made a different decision there. For example, when you read the explanation, it doesn't seem to me how calling the expert would dehumanize him or take away from that aspect. So I agree with you. And I think I would have called that expert. I don't know if I would have called the suggestibility expert or not. I, like I said, I may have leaned to go in the, in the reverse. But I certainly agree with you that, that the statement, the justification for deciding against calling Larry White, that doesn't make a lot of sense to me personally. So I agree with you there. And remember, the other thing, they would have to show how that, you know, they would have to then show prejudice. That would be the second prong. But yeah. And again, I, I totally agree with you in, in regards to the suggestibility expert. Why put a suggestibility expert on the stand? What was Brendan suggestible about? We're here saying that Brendan Dassey is not guilty. We're here saying that Brendan wasn't present at any crime scene. There's no DNA. There's no forensics. Right. There's nothing to link Brendan to any crime. Why is he suggestible? So for me, that, yeah. uh, that confuses yeah. me yeah. greatly in terms of a strategy, for sure. I also believe it's, it's a huge error of judgment that they put Brendan on the stand. He was ill-equipped to handle cross-examination and was totally out of his depth. Yeah, that's a tough one. I have had false confession cases where I've put people on the stand and then others where I haven't. I think you have to go into those. My general view is if we have a false confession case, you really have to go into those and you have to urge the client to testify. I think it's a big advantage to do that. Now, maybe your criticism just means that maybe the preparation of Brendan for the testimony could have been different or better. You know, that's, that's another problem. You could claim ineffectiveness for any number of things, but keep in mind also the decision whether to testify or not is up to the client. So it could also have been that he insisted on testifying. I, I don't know how likely that is, but it certainly happens in some cases. If the client insists on testifying or not testifying, then the, the attorney is bound by that uh, decision. So that's really the attorney's call. But if I go into these, if there's a false confession case, I, I really, in most cases, I start with the presumption, okay, the client's got to testify. And by, by got to testify, I don't mean literally under the law, but to have a chance of winning, I, I think it's, it's often necessary. Yeah, I would imagine that that call is made on the individual you're defending. Yeah. So with Brendan, he was obviously hamstrung by his language and speech impairments. Hopefully at this stage, his trial counsel are across his IEPs and uh, his vulnerabilities in, in speech, particularly in speech and comprehension. So for me, obviously, it must depend on, on the type of defendant that you have. And I think 
if we're talking about whether it was preparation or or not in regards to Brennan's performance on on the stand. I think it was obviously due to the fact that Brendan Dassey was unable to express himself, which I think did a great disservice. Yeah, yeah, I, I see that. I mean, a lot of the answers I was just trying to, when watching that, other parts reading uh, transcriptions and things, I mean, I just wanted to jump in and pull the words out of them, you know, and explain, well, here's here, but he just wasn't able to articulate. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And in regards to Edelstein and Fremgen, we also have Brendan's recantation. And I know that Edelstein thought the jury should see it, yet Fremgen made the decision not to play the end of the tape where Brendan actually recants. How ineffective does it have to be to meet the standard? Right. Well, how ineffective? Well, two components again. One, if it's vi- this is not a case of a clear ineffective action because it's a judgment call. It's not like, did you talk to your client before you went and told the press that, you know, he's guilty or something like that. That, that would be more of an objective standard to meet the client and obtain his side of the story or to review the case for possible motions. Okay, th- those are more objective standards Did you do those things. This is really a, falls into more of a judgment call. I certainly would, ag- I, I agreed with the, with the attorney who wanted to present, you know, the whole tape, uh, including the recantation. To me, that was powerful. And then the other part is, you know, how much prejudice has to be felt by it, you know, and that depends on the totality of all the evidence and so forth. So now we're really getting difficult on how to measure these things. These aren't clear cut, uh, issues and they can easily and so it, if you're if you come to a, in a good faith type of a, a approach like I am here I'm trying to you know be fair and balanced about this if you come to it, it's difficult that way so just imagine if it's that difficult how easy it is to manipulate the test if you want to affirm a conviction for example so yeah it's it's just a highly imprecise test which is common in law a lot of things are very imprecise beyond a reasonable doubt, reasonable suspicion. I mean, we could go on and on, and that's just the nature of, of law, I think. I don't know if there's a better way to, to do these things. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just look at voluntariness. <laughs> you know, that's a therapy session in itself. Right, exactly. We then have closing arguments. I would be remiss not to mention the closing arguments with Edelstein conceding that Brendan was at the bonfire, and he probably did see something pretty traumatic. Where do you begin with that, Michael? It's the last thing the jury is going to hear on behalf of the client, and you make a statement as damning as that. Well, the, I think the appellate court's response to that was, well, he didn't, he didn't admit he did anything wrong. Being there and seeing something isn't a crime. So I don't know what impact that would have had unless he clearly contradicted something Brendan testified to. So that, to me, when you brought up closing arguments, I thought you were going to bring up some of the things that the prosecution argued about innocent people not confessing and so forth. So to me, that the thing you did raise, it didn't strike me as I read the, the, the case decisions. I reread them recently to kind of get ready for our discussion today. But that didn't jump out at me as a huge problem. Uh, we do have other cases similar to that where attorneys are literally conceding guilt on one or more charges. And I think that the appellate court held, well, he kind of he even fell short of doing that. He, he just said he was there and maybe saw something. So that one didn't jump out to me as a big, as a huge problem. Yeah. For me, I guess it's, it's a closing argument. It's the last thing he talks about. And he leaves it fresh in the jury's mind that Brendan, right. Brendan was there. 
and that Brendan saw something. Yeah. Yeah. The recent, I mean, the recency effect has a big impact. That means that the last thing the jury hears is often something that sticks with them. That's why prosecutors love the format. They get to go first and last in the closing argument and they get to hear those, you know, the jury leaves the courtroom with those words ringing in their ears. So from, from that standpoint, you're absolutely right from the timing of it. If you were to sum up the pre and trial counsel representation that Brendan Dassey endured, do you feel that there was a credible case for an IAC claim? I think with, um, as I read these cases with the Kaczynski case, I, I think had it been not been raised, and I, and I wonder if it could have been raised both ways, but had it not been raised on the strict conflict of interest, but just looking at it on the ineffective assistance, I think there is a really good case there. I think the best argument is the, the phone call to the mother, which was a direct result of, the argument goes like this, Kaczynski, uh, it's already been held by the trial court judge. He was ineffective when he was removed from the case. It was already conceded, it was already um, pretty much conceded that it's not effective representation to allow your client to be interrogated by police without being present. And then the direct result of this is that Brendan did exactly what the police told him to do in that interview. And he called his mother and that was used throughout the trial, as you pointed out earlier, including in closing argument, uh, including questions to Dr. Gordon and so forth. Uh, so I, I think that would be the strongest case there. And you can make a cumulative case as well, based on all of the different things that were brought up. And I see why the appellate lawyers, it feels like a conflict. It certainly felt like Kaczynski is doing more work for the state than he is for the client. But I think where that conflict of interest kind of fell apart was that there wasn't that formal relationship. He wasn't receiving a paycheck from the prosecutors, for example. But I think a case can definitely be made there. I think the argument, if I'm um, an appellate lawyer and I'm now going after the trial lawyers, I think that argument is much harder to make that they were ineffective. With, you know, I think we can all agree on that. If you look at it on a comparative basis, I think the two trial lawyers certainly did a lot. Would I, I would not have made the same decisions they made in many circumstances, but that's not the test. And I have the benefit of sitting here in hindsight, having read the transcripts and the cases and studied it and written a book about it and so forth. So that's not a fair comparison. But I think they did a, a much better job, more diligent. Uh, they presented a viable defense. Did they fail to object to things? Maybe. Um, but it's those are difficult things to do in the heat, heat of trial. So I think the case, if it were to be made, I think the much, much stronger case, this isn't really a surprise, but I think the much stronger case would have been against Len Kaczynski. But then you have to, because the two lawyers presided at the trial, I, I, you might have to rope in the argument, rope them into the argument as well. Well, Len Kaczynski did this, that led to this evidence, and the appellate lawyers, uh, I should say the two trial lawyers did not move to keep that out. I mean, maybe they would have to be brought in in, in that way. But it's complicated because you've got two different sets of lawyers, Kaczynski and then the two trial lawyers. And um, it's very complicated by this this kind of different standard about uh, conflict of interest. And then it's further complicated by the trial judge's ruling when removing Kaczynski. So it's complicated, but with all of that there, I, I would have to say, yes, there was ineffective and however you want to allocate it between or among the lawyers, I w wish you would have gotten a new trial on that. I think that would have been the right call. Do you have any last thoughts to share with those who are currently following Brendan's case? Well, as far as, Brendan's case, I mean, this has all been hashed out. It's litigated. I mean, I, I was really disappointed in the Seventh Circuit 
decision. It was not well-reasoned when uh, they reversed themselves, essentially. I, I'm using that term loosely. That's not the proper terminology. Uh, but basically, the Seventh Circuit reversed the Seventh Circuit. I, I was just very unhappy with that. I would also wish this could have been, which is the topic of our discussion here, like I said, I wish it could have been hammered out on an ineffective assistance. Now, I'll qualify all of that, like I said earlier, with regard to Kaczynski and the two trial lawyers. You know, that's a very tough job, I know, because I do it. So when I say I would have done things differently, I'm not saying that they, by, by that standard, they're, therefore they did a bad job. That's not at all the case. And then as far as the appellate lawyers and how they choose, uh, how they decided to pursue things, that's not at all a criticism of them either. Uh, because one, I don't do appellate law. And two, they had, uh, from reading the case law, it appears they had good reasons for uh, choosing the strategy of uh, conflict of interest. So it's just, it's tough. It's complicated. This is one where I'm normally, you know, if you had brought me on and we talked strictly about the interrogation tactics, I would have been all gung-ho. But uh, because I kind of have a foot on mm. both sides of the line, both sides of the line here being a defense lawyer. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a tough, you know, it's a, it's a tough topic because I know and I've been there and it's a tough job. So I guess I'll, I'll leave you with that. I spoke previously with Dave Thompson from Wicklander Zulowski in regards to the interrogation. And again, you know, because Dave is heavily involved in the interrogations and in the training of proper interrogation practices, he was very balanced you know, acknowledging that it's a difficult job. Right. Yeah. And if I, I I'm not at all sympathetic to, to them being a defense lawyer, as you might guess, I, you know, critical of the police. But um, when I, when I look at that, the one thing I will say in their defense is that this case, their tactics were not at all unique to Brendan Dassey. You know, you, you see that this, this issue comes up a lot um, when you, and you see it in different contexts. If the, the, if the interrogation suspect is an African-American, people may cite racism or something. But and in this case, people thought, well, this is unique to Brennan. It's not. I mean, police do this. You know, you've also heard the word systemic, uh, systemic racism, for example. Well, I think um, putting all that aside, I think there's this, uh, other systemic problems. The police are literally trained uh, to do these things and do these tactics. Um, and they, so that in my mind is a systemic issue. They do these all the time. They don't, you know, they do them to men and women. They do it to boys like Brendan Dassey and adults, and they do it to, uh, defendants or suspects of all races. So I will say that in the defense of the interrogators, they didn't, I don't think they singled out Dassey for any reason. Um, they maybe hated Stephen Avery, uh, but certainly these are tactics that we see in Wisconsin all the time. Uh, and I've seen far, you know, I've seen worse than this as well. Although overall, this was pretty, I think, egregious interrogation tactics, as the, as the uh, district court said and the Seventh Circuit originally said. Uh, but in their defense, they do this all the time. So this was not a, a one-time affair. It's how they're trained. Uh, it's it's just part of what they do. It's how they're trained. It's it's inherent in the job. Um, I don't think it should be. Uh, there's there's some reforms afoot, especially with regard to these read interrogation tactics and so forth. But um, that's the way, you know, that's the way yeah. they're trained. Well, that's good to hear that there is reform afoot uh, in, in that area, for sure, you know, to to hopefully stop other Brendan Dassey's. Yeah, and it's especially at risk with the juveniles, something I know you're, you know, you know a lot about and have uh, written and talked a lot about. Um, it's It certainly happens to adults too, though. Uh, the, it's just that the threats change. You know, they'll talk about threat, um, they'll, 
bring in the person's family or spouse or um, use other tactics that to intimidate and coerce. Uh, and they just focus on the target. If it's a kid, they'll do one thing. If it's an adult with a wife, uh, they'll do another thing. Um, sometimes they invoke religion uh, if they think that'll work. So they really target these tactics. They're all coercive and they treat everyone the same in that regard, but they target the tactics to the individual suspect uh, to get the outcome they want. Many people have said that in regards to the interrogators in, in Brendan's case, that it wasn't even good read technique. Yeah, they can um, get sloppy. And as you read some of the things, when you go through the transcript, some of the things they said, they're just absurd. I mean, they don't make sense on any level. But then again, Brendan, given his kind of limitations, that it probably didn't matter. They could get away with pretty much saying anything, you know, at least with some adults, if they say something that doesn't make sense on any level, it's not going to work. But, you know, that it just made it easier. It really was easier doing this to a kid uh, with his limitations. Uh, than it is to to some adults. So they they weren't they didn't strike me as the most skilled interrogators I, I've seen I've seen better. But because of their target, they were able to pull it off. It did take them four, uh, well at least four cracks, arguably five cracks at it, um, with the multiple interrogations, which I think is some evidence that maybe they weren't using the best techniques, as as you said. Well, thank you, Michael. Thank you so much for your time and and your generosity today. Um, I really do appreciate it. Yeah, it was my pleasure. you for a minute if you just take two minutes of your argument time to discuss the ineffectiveness of um, Mr. Kaczynski um, since the district court is obviously horrified by that the state courts are horrified by his behavior they remove him from the case and he actually says at some point I consider myself to be representing the victims so why doesn't that fall within the Kyler against Sullivan conflict of interest uh, rubric? Uh, what Kaczynski did is absolutely indefensible. We haven't defended it. But so he was removed. So he's not representing his, it's as though his, it's worse than having no lawyer at all. He would have been better off pro se. He would have been better off with somebody who was not helping either the victim's family or the prosecution. He was removed eight months before trial. But, but the harm was done. 